This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Thank you for joining us once again, friends. It is time for Evidence for Faith, the voice of Lashio Christie. This is the program where we give you the Christian evidences and worldview, where we help you to become a thinker, and we help thinkers to become Christians. I'm Keith Kendricks, and Kirk Hastings, our co-host, is normally here, but he's taken the day off today. He's been under a little bit of spiritual attack and so taking a much relieved break. So please pray for him and you can send your encouraging emails to him as well as questions or other emails at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com, or you can listen to podcasts from iTunes and be sure and check out the Ratio Christie website at ratiochristie.org. Well, we have a great author on the line today, but before we get to him, we have to do the proverbial quote of the day or quote of the week, and we're doing a series on C.S. Lewis. So here's another great quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. So that from C.S. Lewis. We also normally put in a few news items, but nothing particularly struck my fancy this week. I am currently working on a, a very large study that I've been reading about confirmation bias, but it's very in-depth, and it's kind of a survey of all previous studies going back to the 1960s. So, I think what I'm going to do is write up parts of it and do some more research into other parts, and we'll probably do a whole show on this because confirmation bias is probably one of the strongest biases that we have. It affects almost everything that we think about And what it really is, is saying that when we get a hypothesis or an idea or proposition on our minds, we tend to look for evidence that confirms that proposition, and we don't tend to look for things that disconfirm or things that disprove uh, the idea that we have in our heads. And can be as simple as little things like when you buy a certain car and you have the idea that this is the best car, and that's why you're buying it. They've done studies where they've put people in waiting rooms and with hidden cameras on them, and they'd have two magazines there, one with a cover story that says that this car that you're looking at is the best car, the one you've just bought, and then the other magazine says this car is a terrible car. And, of course, what do you think people do when they've already made the decision they're going to buy the car, and now they're sitting there, and they've got this choice of the two articles to read, what do you think they do? Well, they pick up the one that confirms that they've made the right decision. So, very interesting phenomena. And this, of course, affects things even like 
science. So a scientist or group of scientists will have a hypothesis that they're trying to prove, and they will tend to only look for the evidence that supports their hypothesis without looking at disconfirming evidence and any evidence that comes along that is disconfirming, they tend not to pay attention to it. Um, so it's very interesting. It also has a lot of effect on juries. So if a jury gets in their mind that a person is guilty, even though there might be a lot of evidence that the person is innocent, they will tend to ignore that and vice versa. So very interesting. So I really want to go in depth into that on a future show. Well, another thing that we haven't been able to tell people about for a while is how our outreach has been with the website. Uh, however, the place that we have our website, the, the servers, we've been finally able to get the counting system working again. So looks like our reach over the past two months has been more than 33,000 people, and we're getting each individual show on a weekly basis is hitting 1,000 or more, and that builds up to... We have, I think, our, our most listened to show is well over 15,000. Uh, and Facebook page has really taken off, too. The Facebook page, we're up above 1,500 reach with that. And that's basically brand new. It's only been the last couple of weeks uh, that Kirk has been working on that. So exciting news. Well, today we have a really interesting guest. I'd like to Welcome to Evidence for Faith, Bill Foster. Bill, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Hey, Keith. Great to be here. And Bill is the author of a book called Meet the Skeptic, A Field Guide to Faith Conversations. So right away, that's an intriguing title. Bill, I'm assuming that you're intentionally playing off the idea of maybe a, a bird watcher's field guide where you might go into the woods with a pair of binoculars and you need a kind of a resource to look and see what is it exactly that I've discovered here. Is that the intention? Um, yeah, that's part of the intention. Uh, it is something, uh, an approach that I developed uh, designed for people to be able to carry it with them, uh, something that's manageable, um, a, a mental framework, if you will, that they can carry with them into conversations. But but it's also a, a, um, a play on words, the field guide part, um, to the idea that we're looking for root ideas rather than pulling up weeds. And we can talk about that a little bit more as we go along. But uh, yeah, there's a little bit of a double meaning there. Gotcha. Well, Bill, uh, let's start off. Just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, is this your full-time occupation, writing books, or, or tell, us a, tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, it, it is not my, my full-time occupation. Uh, my day job is graphic design. Uh, I have my own graphic design business, and I've been doing that for about um, 15 years, 16 years. And uh, it's something I, I really enjoy, and, um, but it, it, it allows me also to communicate um, more effectively, I think, when I'm presenting or, or teaching. Um, it, it's, it's just exciting to be able to, to find a good visual or create a good visual that explains an idea. And when you're doing it well, for something that's meaningful like biblical truth, that makes it even better. And the book is very visually appealing. It's very uh, graphically oriented, very, laid out very nicely. It's a good size, too. It's um, just under 200 pages, so about the right size for a book, not too small, not too big. So you can tell that uh, somebody with a little bit of a graphic design knowledge uh, had some input into it. So you said you're teaching. Tell us a little bit about your ministry. Um, yeah, I've, I've been uh, teaching adult 
Bible study classes in my church for quite a while uh, on Sunday mornings, but uh, my wife and I also lead a uh, study for high school students on Sunday evenings. Um, It's a uh, a kind of a course developed by our student minister, uh, and it's called 411, and it's about giving the students the information they need to handle the worldviews that they'll face when they get to college. So it's, it's a lot of apologetics, and it's supposed to be challenging. Um, and, and the idea also there, too, is that the truth can be interesting, and, and it can be fun. You know, it, it's fun to have something to back up uh, what you actually believe. And so we, you know, we, we try to really um, have, have fun with it with the students. And, uh, you know, it's not just some dry um, uh, academic type of thing. We try not to make it that. So we try to make it as relevant as possible, bringing in pop culture references and um, in anything we can to illustrate the points. And I, I try to do that in my book as well. Well, that's really good to hear. I wish uh, a lot more churches uh, had that kind of apologetics ministry and, and were paying that much attention to their youth. That's really, it sounds great. Well, let's get into your book then a little bit. Why, why did you write this book? What, why did you see a need for this particular book? Um, yeah, I, uh, I'd gotten into apologetics uh, shortly after my wife and I got married, or probably actually before that, and I just didn't know what apologetics was. Um, I had been challenged on my own faith and wasn't very good at giving answers, even though I'd been uh, a believer since age 12. So uh, I, someone, I think, in my family gave me a copy of um, Norm Geisler's When Critics Ask, and um, that was one of the first apologetics resources I'd seen. And it's that kind of thing that, that really interested me. I got uh, excited about finding out that there are really good answers besides just kind of the, the general bumper sticker type of cliches that, that we often hear. You know, it's, it's just a matter of faith or the Bible says so, things like that. Um, something that had some real substance to it was interesting to me. And, um, but, but after studying a lot of that, I realized that a lot of it is intimidating for people. When people even hear the word apologetics, it sounds academic and scholarly. And uh, I, I wanted to, to put together something that wasn't that. Um, it would have been easier to write a big book, I think, to put in a lot of a lot of information that I've read. But the, you know, there are already uh, Josh McDowell's and Norm Geisler's and um, all of those academic guys uh, out right. there. And I wanted something more practical than that, um, that that people could you know be less intimidated about. Well, and this is a very practical book too, and we'll get into that because the the layout makes it practical. You obviously spend a lot of time thinking about the kinds of situations that people might be in, that Christians might be in as they face non-Christians and are wanting to witness to them, wanting to tell them about Christianity and the kinds of objections that they might run into. Now, you say meet the skeptic, and let's just clarify for people what we're talking about when we talk about skeptic, because one of the things we do on this show is we talk a lot about critical thinking skills and we try to draw a distinction between thinking critically and thinking skeptically. So, so what do you mean by a skeptic? Meet the skeptic. What exactly are you talking about? Uh, a skeptic from a Christian's standpoint would be anyone who does not have a biblical worldview. Uh, they have another, another way of looking at the world. Um, so, you know, when you find that out, even with, uh, with people who claim to be Christians, if you ask them a few questions, you find out that there may be Christians in name only. It's, it's the biblical worldview 
um, that is the key, not just the label Christian. Uh, do you believe that that Jesus is the only way to God? Do you believe in absolute truth? Do you believe that Satan is an actual being? Um, do you believe that the Bible is inerrant? The, those kinds of things are part of the biblical worldview. Um, so people who dismiss that are in one way or, or another a skeptic. Uh, now that's interesting that you bring out that there might be people who are skeptics, but who are also claiming that they are Christians and maybe even going to church? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, one of the statistics I cite in the book uh, from Barna is that uh, some of those things that I just mentioned, uh, some of those bullet point uh, type of descriptors, um, only about 9% of people who, who they surveyed believed all of them, um, believed in absolute truth and that Jesus was the only way and, the, and those kinds of things. Um, you know, and I, I think that's—I think that's probably accurate. I think there are a lot of people who who are Christians in name only, unfortunately. And right. um, uh, yeah, so uh, you, you know, it's—you find out when you when you start talking to them and ask them some pretty basic questions, really, where they are. Right. Well, the one of the big things I like about the book is that when we're as Christians trying to reach non-Christians or maybe even people who think that they are Christians and have some unbiblical ideas that they've adopted, we're always stuck with the choice of maybe doing some kind of canned approach, some kind of a one-size-fits-all type of a witnessing technique that we might have learned or practiced. But then the other approach is to try to learn a whole bunch of answers for a whole bunch of possible questions. So now you've got all this kind of encyclopedic knowledge in your mind, but and, and you're looking for the question that fits all that knowledge. So what happens is you wind up talking to a person and you talk right past them because either you're doing just a canned one-size-fits-all or you're trying to uh, pinpoint a question. And the moment somebody has expressed one question and you've got an answer for it, bam, you just pop right in. Oh, I know the answer to that. And you just unload your encyclopedic knowledge right. uh, onto them. And that doesn't seem to be a very effective method for, for evangelism either. That, so, that's right. And I, I've been there. Um, I, you know, I, I have a tendency to, uh, a lot of facts and data stay with me. Um, a, a lot of junk, <laughs> right. uh, for, for lack of a better word, a lot of pop culture stuff as well, besides biblical stuff. I, I mean, I'm not saying the biblical stuff obviously isn't junk, but, but a lot of factoids that may be interesting to me, but they may not be interested, interesting to the person with whom I'm speaking. So uh, it, it takes a little bit of slowing down. And I wrote the book for myself as much as for everyone else. Um, to slow down and diagnose the situation a little bit, to ask questions before you start giving out answers. Because a lot of times, even if you have a great answer, that answer may not be respected by the person who's hearing it. Um, and, you know, we, you may hit a home run. You may actually just win the argument outright. But where does it get you? You know, so right. what? Um, you, you know, you've answered this uh, obscure question. Um, but do you really understand 
now how the person sees the world. That's that's where you want to go with it. You don't want to know really their answer to to some probably insignificant question, but rather right. you know how how they see the world, the, the the bigger picture. Right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and we're speaking with Bill Foster, the author of a new book, Meet the Skeptic: A Field Guide to Faith Conversations. So, Bill, rather than doing this, rather than just giving us another canned one-size-fits-all or another book with a thousand different factoids to memorize for the apologists, you actually have an overall approach that you're talking about of asking questions in order to find out what type of skeptic you're dealing with. So explain a little bit about, a little more, you, you did begin to start into this approach that you're using. So mm-hmm. uh, walk us through, what's the kind of thing that we need to do when we're first uh, starting to deal with someone? Okay, uh, sure, yeah, and, and I think uh, approach or model is the way I like to describe it, rather than, it, it's not a scripted thing. It's not, they say this and you say that kind of right. thing, because you, you never know what somebody's going to say. You can't script a conversation. Um, but it is, think, I think about it more of as a, a toolbox, maybe. Um, there, there are a lot of things that you can have in your toolbox, and when the um, instance arises, to know which tool maybe to use. Um, so there are three basic components of the Meet the Skeptic model, and, and the first is to think in four categories. Rather than saying, wow, there are hundreds or maybe thousands of questions that a skeptic could, could raise, think rather that there are really only four kinds, really only four kinds of objections out there, or four kinds of skepticism. Um, The second step would be to clarify their words. Um, Are they using words that they are redefining, words that are popular in the culture but that have been twisted to support their own argument? Um, And a lot of these words are familiar to us. Uh, We we hear them and say them every day, but it's just a matter of stopping there and saying, hey, what do you mean by that kind of thing? Uh, The third step would be digging up root ideas. And this is what you were talking about in in your intro, I think, with people have a, a set of assumptions and... It's getting them to question their own assumptions. What What is the, the big root idea in that category, once you've identified what type of objection this is? What is the root idea there that we should really be addressing, rather than one of the weedy objections that we may pull up, but that may get us nowhere? So, right. so that's the overview. Right. Um, now, now, then you also, though, you have an interesting, once you have figured out their root idea and then you challenge it, you also have the idea of using illustrations to answer so this challenge for them. Right, yeah. Um, if you can use a word picture, um, that's great. Or, or even, you know, literally draw something out. Um, uh, w- one thing that I uh, recommend doing, say, for a spiritual objection, if somebody says... Um, hey, you know, there, there are really many paths to heaven, and we're all going to eventually get there. Or, or you have to meditate. You need to meditate in order to be enlightened. You know, those, all those loaded terms. Um, first, you might ask what they mean by meditate or enlightened or, or something like that. But when you get down to it, uh, what you're trying to, to answer there is that, if they're a spiritual person, is that they're relying on some kind of works to get them to heaven or nirvana or whatever destination they're trying to reach. So good works get you to heaven is, is the root idea behind most spiritual objection. And, and a, probing, a probing question to ask there would be, how good is good enough? Okay, so that's, that's kind of setting it up. But if you said, all right, let me you know, try to make this really simple. 
get out a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, and put Christianity on one side and put all of the other religions on the other side and say, you know, really there are only a couple of things that separate the two. You know, one is Jesus was God. The other side says that Jesus was a man. Um, Christianity says that grace through faith in Christ get you to heaven. The other side says works get you to heaven. So there alone, you're not getting into a lot of different um, beliefs, you know, a lot of specifics, a lot of rituals that all of these other religions may have. You're talking about it on a very fundamental level, um, right. you know, and, it, and it's kind of clarifying the, the conversation for the skeptic. Yeah, and I like the fact that you're really you're determining what their basic root idea is, and then you turn that back on them. And I, I see this as being a very biblical, Christ-like way. Certainly, we know of examples of when Christ was dealing with people, he cut right. He asked them questions, and he would cut right to the heart of the issue. And that seems to be what you're attempting to do here with this book. So, uh, tell us then the four. Who are the four? Skeptical types. What's the? What are the four skeptical areas? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, the four areas are the four types of skepticism, and it, and it actually is skepticism and not skeptics. Uh, you know, a lot of people may may quickly look at the book and, and see those pictures on the cover and say, "Oh, they're 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 trying to break down people or, or label people," and and that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm you know, people are complicated and they have all of these beliefs. Um, but what I'm trying to do is identify the type of conversation you're having at the moment. So the four types are moral, spiritual, scientific, and biblical. Um, out of all the things they can ask, pretty much all of any of them will fall into one of those four categories. All right. And you say the first part of your approach is to ask questions. So are you saying ask questions in order to try to identify which area of skepticism the person happens to be stuck on at the moment? Right. Uh, sometimes skeptics might say something they don't actually mean, um, or, or you may be interpreting it the wrong way. So you may say, how so? Or what, what do you mean by that? Um, you know, elaborate on that for me. I'm just trying to understand, and really do try to understand. You know, it, it, it's not that we're just trying to answer them. We're actually trying to understand how they think and, and let them speak, let them do most of the talking if possible. Um, so asking those clarifying questions. Uh, my wife was in a conversation with uh, a gentleman at our gym one time who who questioned her about reading this book. She was reading a book, um, one of our books, on the creation-evolution debate. And he said he didn't believe in God because he didn't buy into the whole creation thing. And she said, why is that? And the more she kept questioning him, he said, well, God wouldn't let all this bad stuff happen. Well, right there, now you're moving from a scientific concern to more of a moral concern. Mm. And it was his wife who was suffering with a severe illness. And that was really the problem. Um, So if you had, as a Christian witnessing, spent a lot of time working on this issue of science, you would actually have been uh, in the wrong ballpark. Exactly. Yeah, if you, if you were you know scientifically minded and, and really interested in in that information, you could have thought, wow, you know, I can really take this somewhere. I can I can jump into um, unraveling evolution and and all of that. But he may not have cared. Um, you know, his concern was more of a personal issue. Yeah, that's so. That's great advice. Then then you talk about now now we've begun to uh, distinguish where the person is. Or maybe maybe part of that is using this these red flag words. Is it that you're you're looking for the kinds of words the person is using to help to figure out where they're stuck at? Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, and it's just a matter of uh, of kind of tuning your ears to hear those kinds of things. If um, if they some, say something about um, you know diversity, or you know, if you say you don't agree with a particular lifestyle, and and they say, well, I think we should all respect diversity. Well, ask them what do they mean by diversity? Um, is that why is that uh, you know a sticking point? Um, do, do they mean that we should respect people who are of all different stripes? Well, sure. But that doesn't, it doesn't necessarily follow then that we should respect all ideas just because they come from different people of different backgrounds. So is it the people or the ideas that's the problem? Uh, organized religion would be another red flag word. Uh, you know, right. I don't believe in organized religion. I like to do my own thing. Well, is it the organization that's the problem? You know, is it that we show up on Sunday at the same time? that we have a budget, <laughs> you know, that we have set times and dates and events and things like that? Is it the organization or, you know, or is it really the, the accountability? You know, is it that you didn't make up the rules and there's somebody else's rules and you don't like that? Right, you know, right. Excellent. So it's kind of breaking down those words. And, and almost all of these words are common words that, that we're all familiar with. It just takes a matter of giving them a second look and having, trying to get the skeptic to give them a second look. Now, you also place a very big importance in your book on speaking their language. What do, what do you mean by that? Um, yeah, I, I think we have to um, try to avoid, try, try to remember that some of these people that we, we talk with daily are not in church with us, and they hear things in a secular context. They may not understand what born again means or saved. Saved from what? Um, they may not understand um, uh, even, even sin. You know, sin for most people means, um, you know, nothing short of, of murder. You know, you have to do something really evil in order for that to be considered sin, and so most people don't really think that they qualify. Um, so some of those words that I, that I call churchisms, um, we need to be prepared to explain, or maybe not use, and just, just state it in a way that someone uh, who has secular ears, you know, can understand them. It will sound a little more relevant, I think, when we do that. Right. Yeah. Excellent advice. Well, so now let's say that we have started our conversation. We've been very good. We've been asking questions and uh, trying to illuminate what's at the real root. Like you say, dig up the root. Don't just take the surface answers, but really dig down. And we've determined that we're dealing with a spiritual skeptic or a, somebody who has problems with spiritual skepticism. So, so let's uh, let's imagine we're talking with somebody. What's the the um, the root idea there that mm -hmm. somebody's got a problem with? Okay, um, yeah, I, I think people who who consider themselves spiritual a lot of times are are often easy easy to approach. Um, you know, a good thing there that you could say that you both have in common is that hey, you know, I, I respect the the um, your decision that there's something higher than yourself. I mean, that's mm. a step in the right direction, you know, at least. Um, but they're ultimately relying on their own works. Um, good works get you to heaven. That is the the root idea, uh, the the assumption behind uh, spiritual skepticism. Uh, only only Christianity is is grace based. So you would ask them, how good is good enough to get you there? And you know, of course, they're going to say, well, I'm pretty good, uh, but I'm not perfect. Well, you know, if you're trying, where are you trying to go? That's another good question to ask. Where are you trying to go? Is this this place certainly must be better than our current world, or or there would be no point getting there? And if there is a divine being, would he not be perfect? If he's not perfect, then he's just kind of like one of us. So again, what's the point? But if he's perfect, he has standards, 
and just what would be the standard of a perfect being? <laughs> well, it would seem like it would be perfection. Um, so if you're honest with yourself, do you think you can be perfect? Um, yeah, usually the spiritual skepticism comes out, c- comes down to people doing two, two things, and that is either elevating their own capabilities, the capabilities of man to be perfect, or compromising the perfect nature of God. They bring him down and bring themselves up. And that what that makes for is a very burdened lifestyle. If, they, if they're really trying to hold to it and live according to laws, which is what Paul warns against um, in Galatians, it, you know, that's, that's a hard life. It's either a very hard life or a very easy one where you make your own rules, you know, and you, you <laughs> modify your rules. Well, I'm not too good at keeping that one, so I'm going to kind of modify my belief system, <laughs> you know. Right. But, but, but if you're making the rules, then that's not spiritual at all. That's, that's very carnal, you know. Um, so, so it's self-defeating. Wonderful. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and we're speaking with Bill Foster, who's the author of a book, Meet the Skeptic, a field guide to faith conversations. So, Bill, you're saying here, ask these probing questions, but I notice the way that you're, you're describing it. You're not talking about really getting in their face and challenging them. You're just kind of opening the door a little bit and, and kind of, uh, well, gee, have you thought about this kind of approach? Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Uh, hopefully it will go that way. Uh, hopefully if they're interested enough right. uh, to stay in the conversation that, that they will um, you know, walk down that road. And, and, yeah. you know, you may even at some point, you know, you, you can, it's much easier face to face, uh, say than in a, in an internet conversation. I've been in any plenty of internet conversations and tone is a hard thing to interpret, but, yes. but, you know, at some point you might want to ask them, do you really want to know? And not, and don't just say it rhetorically, you know, do you really want to know? I mean, if you don't have time right now, that's fine. Um, but if you really want to know, Hey, I'd be glad to, to, to answer that or, or try to answer that for you. Right. Yeah, we've, uh, we have a lot of interaction with atheists and agnostics online, and that is uh, difficult to tell. Really, a lot of times they just don't seem interested. They're more interested in uh, kind of uh, defending themselves and bullying others who disagree with them. Right. So a lot of times it uh, doesn't seem like they're truly interested in an answer. That's right. Now, you're, there's, you know, one of the uh, ways of approaching situations like this is to try to get somebody to move from uh, no to yes. You know, so we want to get them from I don't believe in God and we want to get them to I believe in God or, uh, you know, I believe in works to I don't believe in works. But it sounds like what you're saying is that you're, you're really just trying to get them almost to a maybe state. You, you know, we don't have mm-hmm. to uh, convert them immediately and they have to switch right now, but uh, let's just move them part of the way in our direction. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've never been in a conversation where that happened, where someone said, you know, you've made some fantastic points and, you know, I, I think I'm ready to you know, walk me down the Roman road, you know, right. to salvation. I mean, that, that, it, it's never happened to me. Of course it can happen. Um, but they didn't become skeptics overnight, most likely, and you're not going to convert them overnight. It, you may not convert them at all. I mean, and as a matter of fact, you will not convert them at all. Um, all you can do is prepare the conditions. Only the Holy Spirit has the power to, to convert them. So, you know, it, it can take a little bit of load off your shoulders if you 
if you change your expectations and say, I'm not going to win the argument, even if you actually right. win it, you're not going to get the satisfaction of knowing that you won it because they're not going to give it to you. I, I, I wouldn't, being a competitive person. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to give that away. I mean, that's just human nature, you know, like you said, to defend yourself. Um, but, uh, yeah, to, to, if they just say, you know, I don't believe or, or agree with everything you just said, but can I ask you about it again sometime? I mean, hey, that's a win. You know, that's, right. that's fantastic. You, pr- you prolong the dialogue. That, that to and, me, is, is a victory. Absolutely. And, and I think your emphasis on giving them illustrations to think about is really another great idea because not only are you challenging their core belief in a kind way, in, but you're also giving them something to think about that's going to stick with them because illustrations tend to stick with us a little better than just a factoid. A factoid, they might say, oh, well, that's not true and not really think about it, not even research it and see if it was actually true. But an illustration, uh, a well-done story, and I think you mentioned for the spiritual person, you talked about drawing a line down a piece of paper and and putting religions on one side and Christianity on the other. And that, I think, is something that could really stick with somebody, and they'll be thinking about that for days and weeks to come. You've also got a great illustration in here for this for this uh, skeptical area of spiritual skepticism called basically good. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that one to people? Because I think that really actually, I've not heard that before, and I think that really would be helpful in a situation like this where you're trying to get somebody past this viewpoint that they're, they're trying to get into heaven by their own good works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Um, it, you know, if they say they think they're basically good, and most people will, um, right. You know, you can say, well, you can you can tailor this to their situation. It, it, it helps if you know them a little bit and you know maybe their interests, their occupation, uh, things they like to do. Um, you know, does a does a basically good football player make it to the NFL? Well, no. You know, you've, you've got to be fantastic. You've got to be exceptional. Does a basically good student get into medical school? No. Right. Does a basically good computer artist work for George Lucas? No. Uh, none of those things. Uh, well, if that doesn't work in our day-to-day life, wh- why do we think it would work on a spiritual level? Why would basically good get us to a really perfect, transcendent place? Um, yeah, that doesn't follow. Uh, so it, it, it does. It, it is something that that you can really uh, make personal and um, you know put it on a very practical level for them. Absolutely, and it's and it is the kind of thing that would stick for them. With them, they're going to be thinking about that for a while. Right. All right, so let's let's move on to another type of skepticism that you've got. This is really good and very common, also um, the moral skeptic. So somebody who's stuck with moral issues or moral relativism. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the root idea there that that the person's usually stuck with? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, moral skepticism usually manifests itself uh, in things regarding uh, sexual behavior, um, money, uh, uh, war, is war justified, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, and people, because in those things, people don't want to relinquish their control. Um, they, you know, they, they either want to express themselves um, sexually in the way they want to, whether that's um, sex outside marriage, homosexuality, abortion, whatever it is, all those hot-button issues, um, or they, they want to cheat a little bit when it comes to they got too much change back, you know, when they go to a department store or something as simple as that. Um, but the things that they say to justify those kinds of behaviors are something like, well, truth just depends on your perspective, or who are you to judge? 
um, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, well, or if something that's particularly offensive and it's put in a gallery, it's, it's labeled as art. Okay, that, that label, you know, there, there's, some, there's moral content there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so, so or, or just because it has a label art, then are we uh, inoculated against critiquing it? You know, I don't think so. Um, so a lot of things that these people will, will, will say when they're, when they're kind of in, trying to defend their, their own moral arguments are self-defeating. Uh, truth depends on your perspective. You know, the response could be, is that just your perspective? You know, um, it, you, can, you can always turn the language back on them, and it, and it completely falls flat. Um, who are you to judge? Well, that's a judgment. Of course, we all have to use judgment. The, the point is that everybody uses absolute truths, even relativists. Uh, they have to they have to either use absolute truths to have an opinion or qualify everything with, well, that's just my opinion. Well, that's just my opinion. And then if that's the case, then why even say anything at all? Um, so, so the root idea there behind most moral skepticism is that people should decide for themselves what is right or wrong. But even that statement uh, itself is self-defeating. People should decide for themselves. Okay, mm, people right. should decide for themselves. You know, you're, you're prescribing how they should act. But if they should de- de- decide for themselves, then you should have no say-so. <laughs> so right. it's, it gets kind of convoluted, um, and, and it is. Uh, it, it is very convoluted thinking. Uh, but a good question to ask is, well, what is your standard for right or wrong? Everybody has a standard. You know, you, you have opinions, and you expect other people to believe those. So there's some standard, you know, but, but the thing is, you want to trust your own standards. That, that's the point. You, you want the authority. Uh, rather than relying on an out, on outside or external standard, and and the um, the deception is that you know, hey, if we just let people decide for themselves what is right or wrong and do what they want, that we'll all be happier, that we'll all be free and right. liberated, right. you know. But when you take that to its logical conclusion, it's it's the exact opposite. It's, it's the reverse of that. Uh, people do what they want. Eventually, our our behaviors are going to conflict, and then who is the moral referee? Who decides what is right or wrong? Well, if, unless we acknowledge that there's a standard be beyond both of our opinions, then whoever whoever is the strongest will decide right and wrong. Might determines right, you know, and and then you're not free at all. Um, you're not liberated at all. It ultimately leads to um, a very uh, would be an, an enslaving society if it actually came down to that. Mm, wonderful. Well, let's move on then and and. Uh, say now we're talking with somebody and they're in this realm of spiritual, I'm sorry, uh, scientific uh, skepticism. And it's, you know, all kinds of issues with evolution and uh, the Big Bang. And, you know, the the Bible just doesn't seem to be accurate. Um, We don't need this God of the gaps. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just silly mysticism. And, you know, you usually typically you hear this whole thing about Zeus and lightning and, you know, that's how religion started and we don't need Mm -hmm. any of that anymore. What's what's going on with that kind of uh, skepticism? Uh, yeah, I, I think the scientific area is probably the most intimidating for most people because if you're talking to someone who who is a pretty well studied individual and and they're skeptical, um, they can uh, bring some concepts into the conversation with which you're not familiar. Uh, but but really, it, it's okay. You know, you don't have to understand particle physics or, or quantum theory or whatever to to ask some good questions and make some good points because. The root idea behind scientific skepticism is that the natural world is all there is. Okay, we've already eliminated the possibility that there is a supernatural being, and so we're going to explain everything 
in terms of what nature can do. But even if a person has 14 PhDs behind their name, they are, go- they are relying to some degree on faith. And I don't mean denominational faith. I mean faith, uh, um, uh, an assumption uh, about something that is unseen. Because we can't observe everything, uh, and especially in, in the origins debate. The or- anything that's uh, a theory about origins, that's something about something, an, an idea about something that happened in the past. Right. So we can't observe that. We have some evidences, but how do we interpret that evidence? We interpret it according to our preconceived notions, um, in, to, some, to some level, according to faith. Um, so a, a good response is, how much faith is required to believe that? Okay, I believe in the Big Bang. Okay, fine. How much faith is required to believe that? Now, a scientific person will probably say, well, I'm not relying on faith at all. I'm relying right. on science. Yes, exactly. That's what you hear all the time. Right. And, but, but they actually are re- relying to some degree on faith because, okay, what, you know, be, before there was a universe, excuse me, there, there really can't be any natural laws unless there's already a universe. So how do you explain, uh, how do you explain the Big Bang by using natural laws? You know, there's nothing before that. Um, believing that something, or actually everything, the Big Bang, came from nothing is pure faith, and it's actually absurd faith. It's not it, it informed faith, because it's just common, common reasoning that something cannot come from nothing. Right. It would uh, be an incredible miracle of its, of its own if the universe just popped into existence. Exactly. That would be a miracle. <laughs> that's right. That, that's a supernatural idea if there ever was one. Exactly. Um, um, but it's an absurd supernatural idea. You know, we believe that it came into existence out of nothing, but that there was a cause for it. You know, and that's that's more reasonable to believe that there was a cause for it, that it was beyond it. Um, you know, it, yes, it's unseen, and we can't observe it directly, but at least that's more logical. Um, and, and the thing there is that ultimately scientific skepticism relies on those types of exceptions to science. Uh, something coming from nothing, a life coming from non-life, one type of creature coming from another type of creature, not just a variation within a species, but a totally different type of creature that requires different DNA, different information. There's nothing in science that backs that up, absolutely nothing. So that right. relies on faith. You know, so we, we all rely on faith. You know, when you hear on the nightly news um, someone trying to uh, get permission to teach creation uh, the creation side in a science class. Oh, they're trying to get religion into the schools. No, we're just trying to have a discussion between two different kinds of science and, and two kinds of faith. You know, physicists and preachers alike both use faith to some extent uh, in order to um, evaluate the evidence. We all evaluate the evidence through some lens, and faith is a part of that. Excellent, excellent. So then, uh, finally, you describe in your book the type of skepticism that you call biblical skepticism. So, uh, what what are we running into when we meet that kind of a person? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think this one uh, people may may see the biblical skepticism title and think, okay, you know, this will probably be a, a section about um, how to answer supposed biblical contradictions and um, a particular. Uh, problematic passages and things like that. Right. And, and it's actually not that. Um, you know, you don't, you don't really need my book or, or some kind of apologetics approach to answer those questions. You just need to read your Bible. <laughs> uh, you know, put, put away my book and read your Bible. Um, we should all be doing that. I'm, I'm assuming that, that we should all be reading our Bible and have some familiarity with the, the more um, uh, 
basic concepts uh, and, and the common things that people ask. But what I'm talking right. about with spiritual skepticism is that this is a perception-based thing, that people get their ideas about the Bible not from reading it, but from secondhand knowledge and hearsay. Mm. Uh, you know, they could not—you're not going to get uh, an objection from the book of Ezra or Nehemiah or Amos— you know, right. it's going to be something from the first chapter of Genesis or something Jesus said, probably. And okay. I guarantee you they haven't read the whole thing in context. And so it's their perception that's, that's actually slanting their view of whatever scripture it is that it's in question. So, so your appeal to the Bible and saying, hey, I, I know, you know, let, let's go to that passage, that, they're probably not ready for that at that point. They, they have no context for what you're going to tell them. So back off a little bit and say, okay, this person probably believes the Bible is man-made. That, that's what I'm saying that is, is the root idea of biblical skepticism. The Bible is man-made. Right. So, okay, if God, but, it, but if God really gave us a book, the Bible claims to be a book from God. If God gave us a book, how do we know it really came from him? Apparently, you know what makes a man-made book. So, you know, would you like to tell me, what do you think would make a divine book? You know, what, what would be included in that? I just want to get your opinion about that. You know, so what you're doing there is just asking them to rethink their perception of the book itself rather than the particulars in the book, which they're not really familiar with. So, and, and then what kinds of illustrations would help us to drive that point home? Because you, you, you talk about using illustrations to, to really get them to think and challenge that idea, that root idea that the Bible is, is man-made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, the the, uh, the thing I like to say is that, and I've used this before with a very scientific-minded tennis buddy of mine. He, he's actually a mathematical genius. Um, but uh, you know, I said, I said, you know, this is the way I like to look at it. Um, I, I believe the Bible because of two ordinary things and two extraordinary things. You know, and if you could break it down to something like that for people, okay, I can listen to four things. Um, two ordinary things. You know, if it's if it's from God, it should be at least honest about people. And the Bible seems to be. If it was written by biased authors, then they didn't do a very good job because mm. they included all of the, the the faults of David and Abraham and Peter and Jonah right. and all of those people. Right. And, uh, you know, so it seems to be honest about that. It seems to be accurate because it describes situations that we commonly face, uh, social situations and things. It's in a different context, but, you know, human nature seems to stand up there. It, it seems consistent. Um, right. It's honest about history. There are a lot of things that we know only from the Bible. Uh, at one point, you know, some, some detail, and you may not have to know this, is, uh, you know, um, people objected to the idea that there was a King Sargon of Assyria, mm. um, but it, because the Bible mentions him. But what do you know? You know, yes, now we've excavated <laughs> and found that there actually was one, and the Bible was the, the primary source for that. But it's historically accurate about things that we do know as well, about the rise of famous uh, empires, Babylon and Rome and Assyria and Greece and, and all of those things. And it, and it gives you a context, and it gives you dates and Excellent. famous kings and all that. Excellent. You know, Excellent. Bill, this is a really a terrific book. So, uh, Bill Foster, the book is called Meet the Skeptic, A Field Guide to Faith Conversations. Bill, how can people reach you or your ministry? Uh, meettheskeptic.com online. Right. Also, think- my blog is um, meettheskeptic.wordpress.com. Uh, and, and you can you can go from my site or go directly to Amazon and uh, read excerpts from the book. Excellent. And well, and we hope that they'll also buy the book too. Bill, right. thank you very much for being a guest on Evidence for Faith. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. But always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,